once you've said yo to the fellow homies. Can somebody say homies? homies? Feel free to find your seat. Hey, it feels great to be here tonight. Um, I just loved worship tonight. Anybody just feeling worship tonight? So special. Anybody lead at the weekend? Anybody attend the weekend? Woo! You guys are still awake. If you don't know what the weekend is, it's like three days of just not sleeping and hanging out with high schoolers. So I don't know. You can do that. Sign up for next year. But uh, hey, welcome to Collective Young Adults. If you're new, I just want to welcome you. I just want to say I'm so grateful you're here, whether you're new to this gathering or new to really understanding Jesus. I just want to say I'm so stoked you're here. This is what we do every week. We gather together as college age or young adults, and we gather together and we spend time just understanding who Jesus is, what he had to say about life on earth, and then we just spend time hanging out with each other, spending time in worship, and I'd say it's a good time. Um, I love it here. And so I just want to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. And real quick, I just want to mention something. Uh, this Wednesday, the uh, author of a book titled Single Gay Christian is coming to speak at Calvary at a Wednesday night service. And I'm going to be sitting front to the left. And I just want to invite you, if you're somebody who deals with that, if you're somebody who has friends in the LGBTQ community, if you're somebody who just has questions on what it means to talk about gay, being gay, and following Jesus, I'd love to invite you out to that. So this Wednesday night, um, we're going to be doing that, and it's going to be at Calvary Osuna. So feel free to join us. But without further ado, I just want to pray over tonight. I just want to pray over this gathering and just communicating tonight and uh, just open up with prayer. Father, thank you for just who you are. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you never give up on us and that, Lord, um, you're just so faithful. So, Lord, we just pray over tonight. I, I, I want to specifically pray over those tonight who have stepped into this space in a frame of mind of feeling broken, uh, oppressed. That, Lord, that tonight we may find freedom in who you are, in your goodness and in your truth and in your reality. So, Jesus, I just lift up those tonight who feel broken, who feel isolated, that we may just seek your face. I pray for those who are lacking energy. Help us to stay awake. And just receive what you have, Lord. And let tonight just be anything I say just straight from your book. It's not opinions. It's not what I desire. But, Lord, what your truth is. So, Lord, we lift up all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. In my short span of how long I've lived, I have come to realize something. I don't, I don't know much. And I don't pretend to. Okay, But what I do know is that no matter how old you are, no matter who you know, no matter how much money you make, no matter how attractive you are, everybody, no matter the circumstances, faces awkwardness. Social awkwardness, just interpersonal awkwardness. That for some reason, we believe as we get older that this thing known as awkwardness just goes away. But that's the biggest lie I think I've ever heard in my entire life. Sure, after you go through puberty, things get a little bit better. Amen. Can I get an amen? But awkwardness never goes away, okay? We've all at some point in our life experienced you're at the movies or you're at the movie cashier thing and you're getting your popcorn, your XL popcorn to go see whatever movie. And then the cashier gives you the popcorn back and says, hey, enjoy the movie. Say, hey, thanks, you too. You're just like, why do I talk sometimes? You're saying what's up or you're saying what you later to a friend of yours, right? You just had like a banging time. You're so excited about saying what's up to them, saying see you later. So you like dap them up or you give them a hug. And then you say, oh, see you later, see you next week or they're out of town. And then you walk in the same direction. You know what I'm talking about? You're just like, 
what do, I, what do I do with myself? What do I do with these legs? Being awkward is in every aspect of the human experience. I don't care. And people who are perceived as being unawkward or less awkward or mastered not being awkward, I have to break this. This is going to be freeing for some of us. They're still awkward. There's just, they're just embracing the awkwardness. You know what I'm talking about? There's a certain level of awkwardness. You just got to sit in it. You just got to sit in the awkwardness. And then as people, we like to, like, mask awkwardness with terms. So if you're somebody like me and you say a lot of out-of-pocket stuff and you're, like, in a conversation and you just have, like, stream-of-consciousness conversation and you're just like, why do I talk, right? You just, what you do, you just slap a label on that. I'm an extrovert. I just love to talk. Yeah, I'm just an extrovert. I'm not awkward. I'm just extroverted. Or you just don't want to talk to people at all. Like the idea to you of a good night is a book, chilling at home by yourself. You don't want anything to do with hanging out with people, talking with people. You say, I'm not awkward. I'm just introverted. I don't know. I just like that. Awkwardness is everywhere. You can't get away from it. No matter what middle school you went to, you're probably still awkward. And that's free. You can... You can breathe a little easier. So if you felt awkward tonight, social anxiety, that's all of us. We're all weird. It's okay. But I think when it comes to awkwardness, life is awkward and things are weird and that's okay. But I've had this thought this week that when it comes to following Jesus and the approach of being a Christian, if you want to call it that, there's one area that I find Christians are very awkward about. One area that Christians, when you bring up this topic, they kind of gets a little weird, unnecessarily. And I, I'm talking about when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Immediately, some of you are like, oh, here we go. And the awkwardness is already setting in. I find with followers of Jesus, when mentioning the Holy Spirit, immediately, it's like, oh, okay. You maybe see during worship people raising their hands at the front. You're like, oh, they're a little Pentecostal here. I see how it is. You see, you hear things that like anointing, or you just start hearing language, this language about the spirit. And you're like, oh, it's one of those churches. They're a little freaky over here. Woo! I find that we get awkward when talking about the Holy Spirit. And tonight, in, in reference to, it's actually Pentecost Sunday, if that means anything. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. But in reference to tonight, we've been going through a series talking on the vision statements, the culture statements of what we want to build this ministry upon. And the first one we talked about for two weeks, it's helping young adults find purpose, belonging, and friendship, all centered on the good news of Jesus. And I believe the second statement that really resides within this ministry and something we want to strive towards is believing that the presence of God changes everything. That it's, it's hard to encounter the real living presence of God and walk away the same person. But I find this, that as we go about our walk, as you begin to follow Jesus, I find this, that many followers of Jesus go about their life as if the Holy Spirit is optional. If we are to live fully, fully into the life Jesus promises, it is essential, essential, my friends, to understand the purpose and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The reality is this, uh, it's so important to focus on this, that the reality is when the Holy Spirit intersects, when it interacts with the human experience, it's, it's difficult, it's almost impossible to go about life in the same rhythm as before. That I would argue, if you do not understand the depth and the reality of the Holy Spirit and the promises Jesus gave concerning the Holy Spirit, you will not be able to live fully into those promises that Jesus gave you as a follower. And so tonight... 
I want to walk us through our text, which is John 16. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. John 16, verse 7. And in John 16, I, I outlined through studying, and I found that Jesus gives three specific promises on what the Holy Spirit does for followers of Jesus. That the work and the power of the Holy Spirit is promised on Jesus' behalf. So if you're there, we're going to start reading. And in verse 7, we'll start says this, but very truly I tell you, and I'm reading now the NIV version because it's the best. Sorry. It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. In 1962, uh, the author, Anthony Burgess, released, honestly, a terrible book by the title of Clockwork Orange. If you have not read this book or watched the movie, it's not a holistic movie. It is not a venerable movie. I do not recommend you go watch it or read the book. It is honestly a terrible experience. But the plot of this book is that it is about a young man in a dystopian future society just obsessed with crime, obsessed with violence. He ends up in prison being arrested, and then the prison decides to run a litmus of just experiments and tests upon him to force him to have the inability to commit crime or do evil. And the book's really not worth for anything good, but there is one line in this book that is said by the prison chaplain that I think is fascinating. Let me read it to you. It says this. In the book he says, what does God want? Does God want goodness of choice? Does God want goodness or choice of goodness? Is a man who chooses the bad perhaps some way better than a man who has the good imposed upon him? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I am not really a betting man. I don't do the slot machines because I like saving my money. But... I'm not a betting man, but I would bet and almost guarantee that follower of Jesus or not, you at some point in your life and in your grand scheme of your existence have considered the idea of God. If you haven't yet, you will at some point. And in considering this idea of God, you've probably began to ask yourself questions about if there is a God, that question, right? If there is a celestial, all-knowing, supernatural being who is above humanity, what is he like? Is he controlling everything with strings like we're all puppets and he's choosing every action I do? Or is he more so more of a deist approach? He created the world a few million, a few thousand years ago, I don't know. And then he created it, just kicked his feet back and is unconcerned with reality. You've probably asked yourself these questions. Just as a person, as a human, follower of Jesus or not, you've asked yourself these questions most likely. I find when reading the verse we just read, we begin to ask ourselves these same questions. When concerning the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. See, I believe this from the first section of our text. The first thing that we can begin to understand, the first promise Jesus outlines is that the Holy Spirit changes your mind. You can write that down if you'd like. I'm a pastor, so I have to say that. But I believe the Holy Spirit changes your mind. When reading this passage, we just read in John 16, 8. I'll just reread it real quickly. It says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, 
He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. About judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So reading at this moment in scripture, Jesus is giving what theologians and scholars describe as the farewell discourse. That Jesus, for the last three chapters of this moment, for John 14, 15, and 16, is outlining to his disciples promises. He's trying to, as much as he possibly can, help them to, to get the picture. This is before he goes to the cross. He's having communion with them. He's having his meal with them. Before he goes to the cross and is resurrected, he's trying to just explain as much as he possibly can to these disciples who just seem to just not get it. And so right now, where we are at in this moment, he's kind of peppered his discourse, his conversation with his friends, with different language about the Holy Spirit, different promises of what the Holy Spirit does. But specifically in chapter 16, what is happening is he's giving promises about the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus. And when we begin to read this moment, we, I, I find we see these three big words, sin, righteousness, judgment. We're like, whoa. I got flashbacks to people on the side of the road with signs. Oh, oh my gosh, this is insane. And I find that a lot of the time people approach this text understanding and just conglomerating those three topics and those three ideas all into the Holy Spirit and immediately what happens when the Holy Spirit interacts with the world. And scholars disagree about what Jesus is saying in this moment. There's like three main viewpoints. The first viewpoint is that what Jesus is saying is that some people will get the Spirit other people just won't. So if you receive the Holy Spirit, good on you. Good job. God likes you enough to give it to you. If you didn't receive the Holy Spirit, well, you're kind of out of luck. Um, better luck maybe, no, not next time because you're going to go to hell because you can't receive the Spirit. So I don't know. I guess God likes you to not give you the Spirit. That doesn't seem very in step or in character with the God I serve or who, Je who Jesus is. And the second view is this, that, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit is going to manifest itself within followers of him. And then through the works of the disciples, through the works of people carrying out God's will, then we, as his followers, will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And i got to be honest with you, that is a very heavy weight to bear. To me alone and us alone, we're going to convict all of the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is making God dependent upon humanity. God was dependent upon humanity. I don't know if that would make him God. It's his choice, and he desires us to play a part in his will. No, I think it's more so he uses us, and we get the joy of being a part of his plan. But it's not all reliant upon us that the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do. I, I would take a more third nuanced view that the Holy Spirit is interacting with humanity in a unique, special way. And that instead of taking sin, righteousness, judgment... And just rounding those all up, putting them in our backpack, and just going on with our day. I believe it's important to understand what Jesus is saying, the role of the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of just the world. Because he says the world in that word. And every translation is the world, the world, the world. So he's not necessarily talking about just followers of him, but everybody, the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So if it's okay with you, I want to break these up. I want to break up sin, righteousness, and judgment, what these mean, what the Holy Spirit does within humanity. So the first thing is, Jesus says, I will convict the world of sin through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, it's kind of hard to understand that. It's kind of hard to get with that. So let me, let me try to just explain it through a word picture, through a little metaphor, okay? You guys know what this is? Uh, some of you are getting blinded. I'm sorry. Do you know what this is? It's a mirror, right? Yeah, right. When you look in a mirror, what do you get? Your reflection, yeah. Words, words are good. You get a reflection, right? Do mirrors lie? No, mirrors do not lie. Mirrors, what you see is what you get. And I have to say, when I wake up in the morning, I'm very disappointed about that. I'm like, this is just facts. This is just reality. I can't get like a selfie camera on here, like iPhone 12 Pro Max, fisheye lens on that thing, or a little Instagram filter. You remember, guys remember like the dog ears? On Snapchat, man, that is throwing it back to a terrible time of history. Mirrors don't lie. Mirrors are a reality. No matter what you think or how you feel, mirrors, if they're made up of the same consistent components of glass and silver backing, it's a mirror. It's going to always reflect the same image back to you. But what do you need to look into an image or look into a mirror and, and see? What do you need? Light. What else? Like the first component, like to be able to see. Eyes, yes. We're getting there. Eyes have sight, right? So you have to have sight to see. Yes, we're getting somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To see a reflection in a mirror, you have to be able to see. What if you were to walk up to somebody who has the inability to see, a blind person, and say, hey, look at your reflection. You'd be so sadistic. That'd be awful. That'd be very rude of you. Blind people can't see into a mirror, can they? No. Right? I find that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I would use the mirror as maybe an analogy of God's perfect law. It just is. It's, it's perfect. It's existent, and it's a perfect example of who God is. It's the standard. God's law, if you could summarize it, it's in the Ten Commandments. It's not to, this is what it means to be a good Christian or be a good person, but what it means to be the best, the perfect, like who Jesus is. That's the Ten Commandments. And I'd say a mirror, biblically speaking, is like that. It just is. There's no changing it. There's no revolving around it. Like a mirror, God's law is just self-evident. Here it is. But the reality is this, that in the sinful condition humanity is in, the sinful condition, by what I mean by it, let me define that, the condition of just messing up, just not getting it right. I think we can all relate to that. At some point in our life, we have fallen short. We have missed the point. That's all that sin is defined as, is just missing the mark, missing the point. I would say sin is being able to see the real reflection in God's perfect law as this mirror. But what happens if you cannot see that reflection? That when you look in the mirror and you see the ugly humanity... God's law, and what's reflected back is, in comparison to who God is and his perfect perfection, all I see is my broken, ugly state. You can't see that. As humans, we have the inability to witness that. It's like as if we are blind. So God's law is presented, and in the reflection, what, we're, what we should be seeing is really the corrupt state of humanity, the corrupt state of ourselves, instead we can't see anything. We're, it's almost like we're blind to that. We're blind to witness that whatsoever. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives us the eyes and the sight to be able to see in that reflection the reality of what humanity is. 
the reality of what humanity is. I think a lot of the time we can get caught up truly in seeing that reflection. I don't think I know. We see the reflection. We look at ourselves like, oh, this is what I did last week. This is kind of what I did a few years ago. This is what I did this morning. And in comparison, we may see God. We may know of God. And the Holy Spirit gives us that conviction to have the sight to see. We could go one of two ways. The one way many people go is down just the path of religion. The path of, okay, I messed up. I see my reflection. I've fallen short. The reflection, the reality of my humanity and my state is ugly. It's bad. So what do I do? I just got to be better. I, uh, these are all the things I've done. I just have to be better. I have to do good to get good. I have to attain and just work on my image till my image is perfect, just like God's in this mirror. And that's the path of religion. It's the path of I'm not good enough as I am, so I have to do to get. My friends, if any of us have ever tried that path, you know it doesn't work out for long, that it just takes a matter of time till you fall short. But this is how I, how I view this picture. Has anyone been to Disneyland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever been on the Haunted Mansion ride? Yeah, it's like the most classic ride. So at the end of the Haunted Mansion ride, if you don't know, you're sitting in this little like dune buggy thing. It's just like a little cart and it's like on a, like a treadmill pretty much. And it shows you a reflection of you and the your person you're sitting with. But in the reflection, what happens is you're replaced by a ghost. So in the reflection of the mirror, what you're seeing is no longer just you but a ghost behind you. This is a really funny, stupid thing. It's like, oh, the ghosts are going to go home with you. I find that the Holy Spirit does that when we accept Jesus. So instead of being able to turn to religion, to turn to, okay, on my own, I have to do to get. Instead, when you accept Jesus into your life, no longer when you look in that image, does God see just you in this image, in this ugliness and humanity, but who Jesus is replacing you. That when God sees you, when you accept in Jesus into your life, when you turn to his righteousness, when you repent, that's all the word means, is change your mind. When you change your mind about what you were doing before, what you see in the mirror, and decide to not go that route, no longer in that image, in that mirror, are you seen alone. But Jesus is seen in your place. This is why I believe that we can so easily... Mix up sin, righteousness, judgment, just conglomerate it all into one passage, into one phrase. But this is really the desire of God knows all things, and I believe God convicts all over the world of he gives us the sight at some point in our lives to see this harsh reality of our circumstances. True eyes to see. And this explains 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, 8 through 10. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So over and over in our lives, following Jesus or not, we are presented at some point in our life the sight to see this mirror and a reflection of our actions, a reflection upon the reality of who God is with the reality of who we are. And if we decide to not turn, to not be righteous as God is righteous, and to not do good to get good, but to accept Jesus as he is, and to understand, hey, I can't do this on my own. This reflection's pretty bad. Who I am as a person, the reality of my condition's messed up. I need some help. That is the turn to righteousness. And I believe this is how the Holy Spirit 
gives the promise, as it's talked about in Romans, of renewing your mind. That I believe the Holy Spirit, the, the parakletos, the intercessor is what that word means, to go on the behalf of somebody else does for followers of him. Is that no longer is it I have to go to God alone and make up for all of my mistakes, make up for all my wrongs, make up for all the things I did. But the intercessor, the advocate goes on my behalf vouching for that I don't have to put my trust in myself anymore. That he renews our minds. That through his power he is able to change our minds about how we view everything. About how we view ourselves. About how we view others. That this is the first promise I believe the Holy Spirit delivers on. All right, are you still with me? That was pretty heady stuff. Uh, substitutionary, penial atonement, and all those things. Let's keep reading. We're going to be in verse 14, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So I believe this is the next thing the Spirit promises. I believe the Spirit promises peace. Let me explain. You're like, peace wasn't even mentioned that phrase, Nick. Do you even read the Bible? I believe the Spirit promises peace because of this. Jesus is saying that through the Holy Spirit, you will understand truth. You will understand the ability to discern between right and wrong. Here's what I'm finding as I, as I grow and get older and follow Jesus longer, that you cannot have peace, you cannot abide and exist well without understanding truth. That truth and peace exist within relationship to one another. That the opposite of peace is unknown. It's anxiety. It's, it's tumultuous. It's changing. Everything's always changing. But truth is so grounding, isn't it? Truth is so freeing. And I find in this moment in the West, what we're facing and why I feel like there's such a breakout of lack of peace and this just storm of just anxiety and depression and, and this, this focus is nobody is grounded in any form of truth. What is true for you is just for you. It's not for me. That's not truth. That's opinion. And I find that we are so caught up in every day, the truth, quote, unquote, as we know it, is just changing. But I love what Leslie Newbigin says in his book about talking about culture and talking about this term relativism, what sociologists call it, and a relative culture of just truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you. doesn't mean it's true for me. He says this, the relativism, relativism, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, it is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. Here's the reality, my friends. You cannot have peace in your life if you have no truth to ground yourself in. And I find that maybe it's because we're Americans, we're just not used to pain, I don't know. But as people, we really have a hard time understanding that as a follower of Jesus, peace is not like a willpower thing. Did you know this? Peace isn't like, man, if I just pray like really hard and like start learning how to speak in tongues and if I just, if I just pace back and forth in front of the room during worship and do like enough like Holy Spirit like jumping jacks, then I will attain peace through my willpower. No, no, no. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is attained by the Spirit. 
And I feel like we kind of idolize peace in a way, like comfort is more what we think of when I say peace. But peace in terms of the biblical sense, what Jesus promises, is a peace of love with one another, unity with one another. That to be at peace with each other. That we're so concerned with ourselves and our own comfort, but Jesus is desiring for us to be at peace with one another. Let me read to you Galatians 5. This is what Galatians 5 tells us. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there are no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Where is your peace tonight? Because if it's resting in something apart from a grounded truth such as who Jesus is, if, if it's resting in anything else apart from that, it's just a matter of time until your peace is wrecked. Until your grounding is just shaken out and taken from beneath you. Where is your peace? Let's keep reading as we wrap up tonight. And when I say wrap up, I mean I have like 30 more minutes of talking. It says this, verse, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Okay, Jesus, cool. Jump down to verse 20 because it's just disciples going back and forth. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her child is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you... Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. You will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father, he will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Growing up, have you ever been grocery shopping? Do you ever have a memory of this, right, just pop into your head? Grocery shopping with your grandma, your grandpa, your mom, or your dad. And it's always when your, your, your guardian or whoever you're with buys just the most stuff ever. And you go to the checkout line, and you're, like, really little and young. Like, all you have is, like, a Scooby-Doo Velcro wallet with, like, three pennies in it and your school ID. You remember that as a kid? You, like, get your middle school ID. You're like, yeah, this is a driver's license, homie. So you're in the checkout line, and you're checking everything out, and you're like, oh, can I get this bubble gum that's, like, in a thing? Your mom's like, no, that's garbage, whatever. And now you're an adult, and you can buy it whenever you want. You're in the checkout line, and then your mom's like, oh, your grandma, whoever, is like, oh, hold on one second. Stay right here. I'm going to go get onions. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, I am so small, and I only have three pennies in the Scooby-Doo wallet, and I don't know a lot of numbers or math, but I know that there's enough numbers and math on this table to know that I cannot afford what is about to be bought. And you're just like, oh, it's over. And you just begin to start thinking, like, man, what is it like to just be not have parents anymore and, like, have to go into an orphanage? And, like, what is that like? Because my parent is never coming back. My guardian's never coming back. That's it. I have nobody to take care of me. And then you're just in this panic moment. You're like, I'm abandoned. It's over. And then they come back. And it's like, okay. <sighs> I didn't know how I was going to pay that with my Scooby-Doo wallet anyway. I imagine this is how the disciples are feeling at this moment. That Jesus is saying, hey. These three years that we've been living and walking and doing life together and ministry and hiking and eating and spending time with one another, uh, that's going to end. I'm going to go away. And they're just like, okay, you're just dropping a bomb on us. You're abandoning us. That's how I imagine these disciples feel. Abandonment sucks. Being left by somebody sucks in any capacity. 
let alone with somebody you count as your living Savior. So as Jesus is saying this, the disciples are freaking out of their mind, but Jesus is reassuring them. He says, no, 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 it is better that I go away because upon me going away, your joy will be complete and nobody will be able to take it away from you. This is the third thing that the Holy Spirit's work in our life completes is our joy. It's your joy, my joy. I find that when we follow Jesus, it's very easy for us to begin panicking as if in a moment of crisis or in a moment of things not looking so ideal, he's entirely abandoned us. In the context of his original audience, what Jesus is talking about is he's going to go to the cross and he's going to be resurrected. But for three days, the disciples will just be scattered. For three days, the disciples will not understand what to do. It's like all three years of listening to Jesus, they didn't understand like, oh, he has to go to a cross and be murdered and then he's going to resurrect. Okay. They didn't understand that concept yet. They didn't believe him for what he was actually saying. And so there's this moment where during the span of Friday to Sunday, there's a Saturday. Friday, Jesus is killed. Saturday, no one's heard anything from him. No one knows where he's at. And Sunday, he resurrects. But the disciples, Jesus is talking about in that moment, that Saturday, that awful Saturday of just hopelessness, is where they will find grief, where they will mourn. But that their joy will be complete because upon his resurrection, they no longer will have to confide in themselves. They no longer will have to confide in doing good to get good. But Jesus' atonement and sacrifice and Jesus' promises are finally fulfilled. Because Jesus made a lot of pretty big promises, wouldn't you say? He kind of talked a big talk. And it was all backed up by this one moment of resurrection. All of Christianity, Paul says, is rested upon Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus doesn't get resurrected, it's all a lie, it's all phony, it's all fake. So the disciples are kind of holding their breath on this Saturday. And that was for the original audience. That's who Jesus is communicating and what he is communicating about in that original context. But so often, I think many believers, I know many believers, we live in the context of a Saturday mindset between a Friday and Sunday of Jesus dying and resurrecting. We feel like Jesus you were really real, you were really apparent when I gave my life to you, when I had that really big mountaintop moment, when it was so real for me. But right now I'm in the pain, I'm in the suffering. I had to go back to whatever life I was living, and, and this is hard, this sucks. And people say that we're living right now as followers of Jesus, between Jesus ascending and returning in the parentheses. That between him ascending and then him returning, we're living in this kind of questionable moment. But we don't know when he's going to come back. No one will know the day or the hour. But we begin to forget that he said, it is better that I go away. It is better that I go away because the intercessor, the advocate, can go on your behalf. The, intercept, the intercessor can step into your circumstances and assist you and equip you with power and equip you with the ability to discern and to know and to have joy. And I love that he says this. He says, you will have joy that nobody will be able to take away. See, joy is similar to truth. It has to be grounded in something. But joy, we believe, even as believers, that people have the power to take things away from us. I was having a conversation with a friend about this of, man, I don't want to give them power. It's like, but what power do you have to give? Any power you have as a follower of Jesus was inherited by the Holy Spirit. He's given you power. It's not like you, like, okay, here's a little Holy Spirit for you, a little sprinkles, some glitter, okay? Here's a little Holy Spirit for you, here's a little power. No, the Holy Spirit has given you power and joy. That no one can take away. That nothing can take away your joy as a follower of Jesus. And that reality is true, that no one can take this joy from you. 
But you're asking, okay, then why do I lack joy in my life at some moments? It may not be able to be taken away from you, but you can be convinced it's not as good as it seems. That the joy and the rest that Jesus has to offer in his will, hence why he's talking about praying in his name. Hence, when he's talking about praying in his name, he's not saying, hey, like, say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, and I'll just fulfill it. I'll just, like, get it done like the genie on Aladdin, which is kind of an overrated movie. But he says, no, 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 when you pray on my behalf for my sake in my will, I will meet you in the midst of that. I will meet you in the midst to accomplish this will. And I believe it is where we find joy in walking in God's will. But everything is working to deceive us of this reality. From our flesh, our own inner man, our own thoughts. Yeah, is God's will really that good? It's pretty good sleeping around with anybody you want, whenever you want. doesn't matter who. Is God's will really that good? We convince ourselves of these realities and we turn astray. My friends, I want to remind you tonight that your joy is grounded in God's will for your life. I want to end with, with one last quote. The Pentecostal power, when you sum it up, is just more of God's love. If it does not bring more love, it is simply counterfeit. If the power of the Holy Spirit in your life is not working to show you more of God's love, more of God's will in your life, it's just emotion. So I want to challenge you tonight. Where are you sourcing your joy? Where are you sourcing your peace? What are you relying upon to change your mind, to evolve your mind? As a follower of Jesus, are you leaning into the spirit and reminding yourself and speaking over yourself these promises that God has given you, that Jesus has literally spoken into reality? And are you reminding yourself of these things? Do you know these things? Or are you going about your life as if the Holy Spirit is just an optional third asset, not even a part of following Jesus? I think that's important to consider. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that, God, we don't have to look within ourselves and just figure out on our own what it means to have joy, what it means to have peace, what it means to grow and renew our mind, that you renew our mind through your spirit, Father. And Lord, I, I pray for my friends in this room who have, in their walk with you, just stuck to neglecting the spirit, not going before you and asking in, in humble confidence what you desire for them to do. Lord, I, I just pray over them that they may begin a relationship with you, that they may begin a dialogue with you that is inviting the spirit to work in their lives. The Holy Spirit, he, he is not a just random, weird cousin, but he is somebody who you gave us to intercede on our behalf. Help us to walk in that truth. And Father, I pray for anybody in this space. I pray for anybody who has been walking, looking in that reflection, looking at that mirror. They're convicted of their wrong. They're convicted of missing the mark of falling short. Lord, I pray over my friends in this room who feel like they're in that space, like they're not good enough. Father, because we're not good enough apart from you. We just aren't. We need you, Jesus. That, Lord, they may not walk out of here feeling condemned. That, Lord, they may not walk out of here thinking that you hate them, thinking that, Lord, you don't want to work in their life. But, Lord, you show us that reflection. Give us eyes to see that reality, to break our hearts for what breaks yours. And so, Lord, I, I pray over anyone in this room who has felt oppressed by the weight of condemnation. Maybe they went to a church before. 
and they just felt condemned, God. But Lord, that we may know that you love us. You love us enough to intercede on our behalf. So tonight, help us to walk into that. Help us to turn from whatever way we're living to you. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, y'all. We're going to jump into a time of worship. And I just wanted to invite you to really let